0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, Grit Radio, The Majority Report, The Onion Radio News, NPR, markfiore.com, The Progressive, and The Colbert Report with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show.
1: As the Libyan intervention drags on and Gaddafi's forces have moved into more densely populated areas, the April 8th New York Times editorial page explained how NATO could shift to urban warfare from the air without risking possibly heavy casualties. Bring in the low-flying planes. The American A-10 and AC-130, the editors explain, quote, can fly slow enough and low enough to let them see and target Colonel Gaddafi's weapons without unduly endangering nearby populations, close quote. The AC-130, a modified transport plane bristling with cannons, has been used in virtually every U.S. war since it debuted in Vietnam. The results? In 2002, an AC-130 attack on a wedding party killed dozens of Afghan civilians and wounded many more, including women and children. Another wedding party was struck in 2008, killing as many as 90 civilians. Other AC-130 strikes on civilians have been reported and protested in Afghanistan. In January 2007, Oxfam reported that at least 70 Somali nomads were killed in a secret operation attempting to kill three al-Qaeda leaders. And in the 2003 siege of Fallujah, the AC-130s caused many civilian deaths. As reported by the British Guardian, a former soldier who served in Fallujah described an AC-130 attack on an apartment building there. Quote, It was the most destructive thing I've seen, before or since. Close quote. quote. As Ferris documented over the years, the Times has a history of downplaying such civilian deaths and taking the military's word on the precision of its weapons, which might help explain their faith in such a fatally fallible warplane.
2: says this would be his policy towards Libya and their oil.
3: Clip number four. If somebody said, what would be your theory or what would you do in terms of Libya? I'd do one thing. Either I go in and take the oil or I don't go in at all. We can't be the policemen for the world. We just take their oil? Absolutely. I'd take the oil. I'd give them plenty so they can live very happily. I would take the oil. You know, in the old days, well, can't can go- candy. in the old days, when you have a war and you win, that nation's yours.
2: What a real clown this guy is. Yeah, you, by the way, you know in the old days, uh you would rape and pillage, quite literally. So you'd go in and you grab all the gold you could and all the valuable stuff and then you would have your way with the women. That's how wars were in the old days. That's how part of how they got people to sign up for the army. Should we go back to that? And well in this case he would be raping their natural resources. So yeah, yeah, I'll help the rebels as long as I get to steal all their oil. I'll give them enough so that they can survive. Is he not merciful? Is he this guy's actually running for office? But forget that he's running for office. He's leading in the Republican polls. I mean, forget what it says about Donald Trump. What does it say about the Republican voters? But the clown fest continues. Listen to what he says about what he do to OPEC. Clip number three.
4: I mean, what, what, how, how do we get more oil without paying OPEC? No, no I I think, mean,
3: what
5: you, there's what so, so much
3: oil, I just said. In fact these analysts were saying they didn't know why the price wasn't going down because they said it's so much, there's so much oil coming out from all different sources. The one guy said, the ships are loaded, they don't know where to dump it. And then they say, we don't understand why it's not coming down. It's not coming down because OPEC sets the price. But we can't stop OPEC from setting oh, the price. Oh, we could do it so easily. We have such power if we knew how to use it. We, ha- we don't use our power. We need one to thing going for us, brain power. We don't use our brain power. We need one thing, brain power. Okay, and what would be your one big idea to get OPEC to start charging such
4: high price gouging as
3: what you would saying? Andy, it's the messenger. You know, I can send two executives into a room. They can say the same thing. One guy comes home with the bacon and the other one doesn't. And I've seen it a thousand times. It's the messenger. We don't have the right messenger. Obama is not the right messenger. We are not a respected nation anymore. The world is laughing at us. You tell OPEC fellas that price is going down. Let me tell you, it'll go down if you say it properly.
6: Oh, yeah,
2: the world is laughing at us. Because you're leading in the polls of one of our two major parties. The guy already has the red hair. Put a red, bulbous nose on him, some floppy big shoes, and have him squirt water out of his lapel. This guy's a clown. You know what you need? You need brain power. He sounds like Bush. You need brain power. You know, you just go in there and you say to OPEC, you know, give me the bacon. First of all, they're Muslims, so I don't think they'd have any bacon. (laughs) Second of all, he's like, hey, it's a messenger. You know, you just go in there and you just say, give it to me. I want, I want low gas (laughs) republicans you ought to be embarrassed of yourselves man leading in the polls
7: sad
0: We're looking at how things are progressing for the region's women in the Middle East. We turn to Daily Show senior women's issues correspondent Kristen Schull. Kristen, thanks for joining. Appreciate
6: being here.
8: Well, John, I'm sad to say for all the hard work that women have done in support of these movements towards democracy. It seems to be lost on the menfolk there.
4: In Egypt, women are finding themselves locked out of forming a new government just weeks after they helped lead the revolution.
9: There are no women on the committee to revise the Constitution and only one woman in the new cabinet. It's clear gender equality has a long way to go. go. The loudest voices, those of young men, telling the women to go home and stay home. On International Women's Day, this man tries to convince these women their role is to clean and mop.
8: told them to go home and mop on International Women's Day? That's why we mop so hard on International Women's Day Eve, so we can enjoy the day.
10: I understand, Chris. I can see why that's very disappointing.
8: It's... Yeah, but it's not surprising. Revolutions are notorious sausage fests. And just when it seemed like Egypt was going to be a democracy clam jam, BOOM! Here comes the grand old pickle party! Well,
0: I, I think that's an unfair generalization of, of, of revolutions as, as, as pickle parties. It's... Hmm, really? Yeah.
8: Name one woman who took part in the American Revolution. Just one? Mm-hmm. Oh, I uh Someone who didn't make the flag.
0: <laughs>
8: oh. No. oh, uh uh Santa Julia was Lewis and Clark's guide, so
6: mm-hmm.
7: Oh.
8: Um oh. Hey, tell them, then Underground Railroad. <laughs> um, alright. <laughs> oh, what about uh, uh mm, she discovered radium and she was French. <laughs> Sally Fields is an actor.
3: All right, so what can women in the Middle East do to get the rights that they fought so hard for?
8: Well, just because women are being shut out of the political process doesn't mean they don't have options. In the short term, they could always be Gaddafi's voluptuous nurse or one of his voluptuous bodyguards.
6: The women are called the Amazonian Guard. They are said to be hand-picked virgins who are trained in martial arts and firearms.
8: Wow.
3: Yeah.
11: Why do they have to be virgins?
8: Well, they're better at following orders than the slut squad. They're,
11: yeah. There's a slut squad?
8: Fortunately, there's a precedent in the Middle East for groups of people who have been historically persecuted.
0: You're not suggesting.
8: That's right, John. It's time women had their own holy land. Presenting the independent female republic of Badjustan. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: uh, <coughs> that, that was. Yeah. V- yeah, no,
8: not not
0: uh, quite. But, little on the nose.
8: Yeah. What about (laughs) she-egypt? Misrael. Uh, how about Turk Womanistan?
3: Bubados.
8: Oh, Bubados? That's in the Caribbean. Come on.
3: Lesbanon?
8: I got it. Libya Majora.
6: Done. Ah.
8: Done. Done. Of course.
0: I'm not, I'm not sure women are really akin to the tribes of Israel wandering the Sinai. So I... <laughs> of course
8: not. Right. Women would never spend 40 years wandering the desert. One of us would have the good sense to stop and ask for directions. Am I right, ladies? Am I right? F*** <laughs> But if turning womanhood into a religion is what it's going to take, we'll make it one. I've even designed our first female holy site. The Dome of the Rock. John. 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 Hey, hello. What? You're staring.
12: Oh,
7: I saw the picture's just so spiritual. It's just uh (laughs) Chuck, can we have that up again so I could just Oh yeah. Yeah, They are pretty
8: sweet.
7: Yeah. Hey, is
10: is Libya Majora? Is that like women only? Could I live in Libya Majora? Is it kind of
8: Sorry, John. So you could be one of our bodyguards. Are you still...
0: No, I I have two children. uh...
8: Well, I'll put you down for the slut squad.
0: Oh, thank you very much, Kristen. Kristen Shaw, everybody. We'll be right back.
5: see how a war ends? We have a picture of it. Check this out. Uh, The figure that you're looking at right now is what the United States military spent this past year in Iraq. That's how much we spent winding down our eight-year war there this past year. Here's what the military has requested for Iraq next year. Boink. This is what it looks like when wars end. Long wars that started for reasons other than what they they told us they were starting for. Uh, They end with funding graphs that look like this. Now, spending by agencies that aren't the military actually goes up for Iraq next year. Do you remember how George W. Bush funded both the wars as emergency supplemental funding? It was a big surprise every few months that we were still at war. Well, not only did President Obama stop doing that, but this year, they also combined everything that we spend in both Iraq and Afghanistan. So our military spending goes way down as the war winds down in Iraq. But since there's an XXXL giant embassy there and tons of civilians who are staying on, Hillary Clinton's budget for Iraq at the State Department, that actually goes up. Uh, Part of that is to pay for the small army of private contractors that Secretary Clinton said she would ban when she was a candidate for president, but that she now oversees by the thousands in the place where our war is still ending. The military, spending on the military in particular, is one of those things in Washington, one of those blessed things in Washington, that functions essentially as a bullpucky detector. It's one of those things that tells you whether or not people really mean what they say. This, for example, is the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. It is a very, very fancy fighter jet. It is also the subject of a whole lot of advertising in Washington, D.C.-based publications. Why does it star in so many beltway advertisements? Why does it get so much attention? Because Congress has decided in its infinite wisdom that it wants to fund part of this plane that the Pentagon does not even want. This very fancy jet comes with a spare engine. Full disclosure, one of our parent companies, GE, helps make this spare engine. The way Congress has designed this right now, for every joint strike fighter jet that's built, there is a backup engine built for it too. Why do you need a backup engine built for this jet? Good question, the Pentagon doesn't know either. They do not want it. But despite the fact that the military keeps saying they do not want it, Congress keeps funding it. And today, that spare engine offered us yet another bullpucky detection moment. President Obama's spending plan that was put out today follows the military's advice. It eliminates funding for this spare engine that the military does not want. House Republicans, on the other hand, they want to keep it. Their spending plan for the rest of the fiscal year includes $450 million for this random backup engine that the military does not want and would prefer to kill. The military brass gave a press conference today. This is amazing. Military brass gave a press conference today detailing the list of things that they really don't want that Congress keeps making them take anyway. (laughs) Only in America. Uh, The spare engine got star billing.
9: We consider it an unnecessary and extravagant expense. American taxpayers are spending $28 million a month for an excess and unjustified program that is slated for termination.
13: Well, no, I think the secretary, what he said is he will look at all options uh, to terminate the program and remain strongly opposed uh, to the, uh, the extra engine.
5: We remain strongly opposed to the extra engine. It is unnecessary, it is extravagant and you're getting it anyway. House Republicans will not let this thing die. According to the Wall Street Journal today, Defense Secretary Robert Gates is now personally reaching out to Republican freshmen in the House in a last ditch effort to pretty please kill this thing that the Defense Department desperately does not want. This is probably the part where I should mention that the random spare engine that can't be killed is primarily being built right outside Republican House Speaker John Boehner's district in Ohio. I should also mention that Rolls-Royce, the other company that's in on this engine, just built a giant fancy plant in Eric Cantor's district in Virginia. And that plant was slated to build part of this spare engine. In addition to wanting to keep this engine that nobody wants, wanting to buy this engine that nobody wants, House Republicans also appear to want to keep about $4 billion in oil and gas subsidies in the budget. Yeah, because those companies don't make enough money, right? President Obama would like to cut them. House Republicans would like to leave them in. What do House Republicans want to cut exactly? Well, they would like to cut funding for food inspectors. They would like to cut funding for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. You remember the people who were right about Katrina, the people who tell us when hurricanes are coming. They also want to cut funding for the National Nuclear Security Administration. These are the people who lock up loose nuclear material all over the world. Smoking gun, mushroom cloud, remember that? Remember we had on that guy from the NNSA, the undersecretary for saving the world? The Republican plan would cut his budget. So in terms of their priorities, we'd stop working on the whole keeping terrorists from getting a bomb thing, but we'd keep spending money on the random spare engine that the military doesn't want and keep saying, please don't make us take it. For people who wonk out about policy, it is truly fitting that Valentine's Day and Budget Day are the same day this year. It does warm the heart to have this many numbers to play with. But days like this in Washington are also uh, clarifying in a conceptual sense. If you want to keep building stuff the military does not want, because you think of weapon systems as a jobs program? as just a make work jobs program. We could be making anything. Then just call it that. Call it a make work jobs program. It could be economically stimulative. Sure, I would prefer some new off ramps or a new train line from downtown to the airport in whatever city you live in. But knock yourself out, build the pointless engine that the military doesn't want. Here's the thing though, you cannot be the party that says it is cracking down on spending, cracking down on what it derides as government waste. You can't be those guys while you are simultaneously bending over backwards to fund all sorts of government waste, stuff the government says explicitly it does not want to buy but you are making them buy it. You can say you are fiscally conservative or you can keep funding stuff the Pentagon doesn't want anymore. You can do one or the other, you cannot do both. Help with me,
9: my private, and we'll sail around the world I will be your and
0: you my way let go $5 a month, or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
9: I love you, I have a drowning
14: grip on your adoring face. I love you, my responsibility has found a place. On April 12th, people in more than 35 countries and lots of cities like Columbus, Dallas, Kansas, and many other throughout the states will participate in the first global day of action on military spending. In D.C., they are most definitely sitting this one out. In fact, after weeks of budget brinkmanship, Congress emerged this week with a tentative so-called compromise that was unable to get a single cut made to spending on the U.S. military. Christopher Hellman at Tom Dispatch recently added up all the hidden military-related spending in the budget and came to a startling number for fiscal year 2012, something like 1.2 trillion. That's trillion with a T. In this year's budget, they admit to $670 billion or so, plus another $41 billion for Homeland Security and $76.6 billion for Military Construction and Veterans Affairs, an increase over last year. After the long search for ways to shrink government spending, the compromise brings us a 16% cut to the Environmental Protection Agency, but nothing in the way of cuts to the military. The Departments of Education, Labor, and Health and Human Services, which represent only about 15% of the budget, are taking 52% of the cuts. The Institute for Policy Studies estimates it costs taxpayers $1.2 million a year for each soldier kept in Afghanistan. To make up for the $141 million cut from fish and wildlife safety, say, you'd only have to bring 117 soldiers home. The missiles that fell on Libya on the first day of the supposed peacekeeping mission there cost the US over a hundred million. That was March 19th. As of yesterday, the estimated cost of the Libya operation is 608 million. Tomahawk missiles cost one million dollars each. We know that governors like Scott Walker were helping to manufacture a deficit to cut programs they didn't like even as they shrank taxes for billionaires and the rich. Our Democratic president has given in to deficit hawking too. But to not make a single cut to so-called defense while attacking desperately needed funds for jobs? Some call the budget deal a compromise. It is. But it's not just a compromise between parties. The killer compromise we should really be talking about instead is the compromise both parties make with the war profiteers. To keep their cash coming and the killing and dying continuing while people and all things public line up for the chopping block.
10: Susie Madrick, I guess, caught this over at uh, Crooks and Liars, but it was a piece by John Norris at uh, Foreign policy dot r, Foreign Policy Magazine. Uh, dated April 13th, There was a, the Pentagon issued a report that received virtually no attention entitled, A National Strategic Narrative. The report was issued under the pseudonym of Mr. Y., which apparently was a takeoff on George Kennan's 1946, quote, long telegram from Moscow, uh, published under the name X in the following year in Foreign Affairs. The piece was written by two members of the Joint's Chief of Staff in supposedly a personal capacity, uh, but it's fairly clear that it would not have seen the light of day without a measure of official approval. The narrative argues that the United States is fundamentally getting it wrong when it comes to setting its priorities, particularly with regard to the budget and how Americans as a nation use their resources more broadly. The report says Americans are overreacting to Islamic terror- extremism, uh, underinvesting in their youth, and failing to embrace the sense of competition and opportunity that made America a world power. In other words, uh, the radical right in this country has uh, managed to uh, shrink. Talk about neutering us. Uh, Courageously, the authors make the case that America continues to rely far too heavily on its military as the primary tool for how it engages the world. Instead of simply pumping more and more billions of dollars into defense, the narrative argues, quote, By investing energy, talent, and dollars now in the education and training of young Americans, the scientists, statesmen, industrialists, farmers, inventors, educators, clergy, artists, service members, artists, artists, and parents of tomorrow, we are truly investing in our ability to successfully compete in and influence the strategic environment of the future. Our first investment priority, then, is intellectual capital and a sustainable... Infrastructure of education, health, and social services to provide for the continuing development and growth of America's youth. The report places considerable emphasis on the importance of achieving a more sustainable approach to security, energy, agriculture, and the environment. Another key point, America won't get its approach to policy right if it leaves foreign policy and domestic policy in tidy little silos that ignore the interconnection between the two. In other words, American national security is as much, if not more, about what we do in this country for our own people than what we do with our military to other people. The paper argues persuasively that the tendency of Americans to broadly label the rest of the world has been hugely counterproductive. The authors point out that the tendency over the last decade by some Americans to view all Muslims as terrorists has made it more difficult to marginalize genuine extremism, extremism while alienating vast swaths of the global Muslim community. Quote, we have misunderstood interdependence as a weakness, rather than recognizing it as a strength. The key to sustaining our competitive edge at home or on the world stage is credibility, and credibility is difficult capital to foster. It cannot be won through intimidation and threat. It cannot be sustained through protectionism or exclusion. So there you have it. Joint Chiefs of Staff, at least two members of it, coming out with a document that uh, of course no one pays attention to sadly
9: oh, the news i need,
13: It's The Onion Radio News. A U.N. factoid-finding mission discovers Liberia is about the size of Tennessee. This is Doyle Redland reporting. UN factoid finders in war-ravaged Liberia have found the West African nation to be roughly the size of the state of Tennessee. Team leader Dr. Johann Sieber revealed the interesting size after returning from that fascinating African country this morning. Did you also know that the flag of Liberia was muddled after the U.S. flag? Or that last year, Liberia received over 200 inches of rain? Over the course of the mission, the UN team, composed of soundbite engineers, fun fact-checkers, and a trivial pursuit, Squad collected more than 300 informational tidbits about the desperately poor and war torn country. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News.
9: Drone attacks are a significant part of the wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and there are reports that they're playing some role in Libya as well. But the media still don't want to open up the program to much criticism. An April 24th Washington Post report by Walter Pincus headlined, Debates Underway on Combat Drones, offers a case study on how not to have a debate. Pincus cites a British military study calling the use of missile-firing drones a genuine revolution in military affairs and morally justified. Pincus then moves on to a recent conference in Washington where, quote, the issue of drones was also widely discussed. Close quote. How widely? Well, as it turns out, the wide discussion included everyone from military drone proponent Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Black to ex-CIA drone proponent Michael Hayden, who described the supposed accuracy of drone attacks. And for balance, we heard from the Deputy Director of the Air Force Joint Unmanned Aircraft Systems Center, Colonel Dean Bushey, who says that drone pilots train just like conventional pilots. Now, there are plenty of questions to ask about a government policy of assassination by remote controlled aircraft including about whether or not it's even legal. But the Post's debate seemed to exclude anyone not directly involved in the drone wars. Now a closer look at what's in these
4: files with regard to one group in particular, detainees who were released from Guantanamo and then returned to terrorism. The exact number is not known, but NPR and the New York Times have identified 41 men by name who went back to Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. NPR's Tom Jelten considers whether or not the detainees' files
9: predicted who would return to the fight.
7: The reason for holding enemy combatants in wartime, as President Bush said, is that they are people who, if set free, might well go back to fighting you.
13: We have a right under the laws of war, and we have an obligation to the American people to detain these enemies and stop them from rejoining the battle.
7: U.S. commanders had another purpose in holding people at Guantanamo. They wanted to get intelligence from the detainees about any terrorist operations that were in the works. But the legal justification for Guantanamo was to keep combatants from going back to the fight, and the operation can be judged by that standard. The record is not bad, but hardly perfect. Two Saudis who were released from Guantanamo became leaders of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, now the most dangerous al-Qaeda branch in the world. An Afghan went home and re-emerged as a top Taliban leader. A Kuwaiti was released from Guantanamo, only to end up as a suicide bomber in Iraq. The classified military files from Guantanamo include ratings of how likely each detainee was to pose a threat to the U.S. if released. That risk assessment exercise is revealed for the first time in these documents. Thomas Wilner has defended Guantanamo prisoners, but also advised the government on its detention operations. He wasn't impressed by the assessment process.
11: Nobody wants to release terrorists, and you really wanted a good review. What I found was that you had people collecting raw intelligence data and throwing it into a pot, and then people who were not trained analysts would look at it and say, oh, there's a lot of stuff here, so this guy must be a threat.
7: The result? Some relatively harmless detainees were rated as dangerous, while some truly threatening detainees were not. Abdallah al-Ajmi, the detainee who went to Iraq as a suicide bomber, was considered a medium risk, and his assessment was barely a page and a half long. In fact, the NPR investigation shows that detainees considered likely to pose a threat to the U.S. were no more apt to return to terrorism after being released than those who were rated medium or low risks. David Reams, another lawyer who has represented detainees, says the record shows that Guantanamo interrogators just didn't get good intelligence on their subjects.
15: It is very hard to make accurate predictions in a situation where the evidence that you have is inherently unreliable. So you have decisions about dangerousness based on hunches or based on what jailhouse snitches have said.
7: So was it pointless at Guantanamo to predict which detainees were safe to release and which were not? The Guantanamo lawyer, Thomas Wilner, says commanders there should have considered other factors besides a detainee's risk rating, like what might have happened to him at Guantanamo. Abdallah El-Ajmi, the Iraq suicide bomber, was actually Wilner's client. It made sense, he says, that El ajmi was not seen as particularly threatening. When sent to Guantanamo, he was suspected only of having volunteered to fight with the Taliban. But Wilner says he was actually surprised when the government announced it was sending El ajmi back to Kuwait.
11: I think he was not a terrorist caught up in terrorism before, but Guantanamo had turned this guy into a crazy sort of vegetable. He went from when I first met him to be a very nice, sweet kid, over a course of years to this wild, angry, angry person. And I was shocked.
7: Wilner says the lesson from the people who returned to the fight, his client being one, is that if you don't want a detainee to go back to terrorism, you can't just focus on the terrorism resume he brought to Guantanamo. You have to prepare him for a return to normal life.
11: How do you deal with them in releasing them? How do you make sure that a person who is angry at you doesn't do anything about it. There was just none of that subtlety uh, of it.
7: Unreliable intelligence, mistaken judgments, a haphazard transfer process. In the end, the Guantanamo documents may reveal less about the dangerousness of the people detained there than about the flaws of Guantanamo itself. Tom Jelton, NPR News.
13: As the unfolding drama continues, it's time for another installment of Terrorist Locker, Tough or worse. In 2008, this soon-to-be commander of toughness said the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his evil cronies was too important to be held in a flawed military commission. That's tough. But with enough political pressure and cable news hysteria, he changed his mind and sent his attorney general to flip his flop. Wuss! That's the same attorney general who in 2009 said we can put terrorists on trial in federal courts because we've been putting them away like that for years. That's tough. But now he blames the families of victims for this new judicial spinelessness. Sounds like he's a... Wuss. But what about families of victims who want good old-fashioned American justice? They're... Tough. A justice system that has convicted over 400 terrorists since the September 11th attacks. That's... Tough. Justice. But our Guantanamo commissions have convicted... Six. Gitmo is nothing but a... Wuss. The old USA used to put on trial and convict terrorist killers with 12 ordinary people. They're tough. The new USA is afraid to let these mass-murdering terrorists even step on American soil to face justice. Wusses. Terrorist Lockup. A new nation of wuss. I know what i need it, And I don't want
8: to waste more time.
9: I'm in a New York state of mind. It was so easy living day by day, Out a touch with the rhythm and blues. But
8: now I.
12: In 2008, many voters viewed Obama as the peace candidate, but he's turned into a war president. He'd promised to get all troops out of Iraq by the end of this year, but now his administration is trying to persuade the Iraqi government to sign an agreement extending the presence of U.S. troops there. And in Afghanistan, where Obama has tripled the number of U.S. troops, His administration is again backpedaling on withdrawal. Obama said he'd start bringing troops home this July, but that seems more and more likely to be just a token number. He had vowed that all U.S. troops would be out of there by the end of 2014, but now his administration is negotiating with Kabul to have long-term military bases in Afghanistan. And of course, a month ago, Obama launched the war on Libya, which shows no signs of ending anytime soon. From his Nobel Prize speech to his Libya speech, Obama has become the chief advocate of war, boasting of its utility and expanding its justifications. He's turned into a better salesman for war than his predecessor, and he's running the empire more efficiently and with less antagonism. More bombs, less bombast. That's the Obama doctrine for you. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
4: Today, reauthorized funding for Facebook, the massive online surveillance program run by the CIA. According to Department of Homeland Security reports, Facebook has replaced almost every other CIA information gathering program since it was launched in 2004.
12: After years of secretly monitoring the public, we were astounded so many people would willingly publicize where they live, their religious and political views, an alphabetized list of all their friends, personal email addresses phone numbers, hundreds of photos of themselves, uh, and even status updates about what they were doing moment to moment. It is truly a dream come true for the CIA.
4: Much of the credit belongs to CIA agent Mark Zuckerberg, who runs the day-to-day Facebook operation for the agency. The decorated agent, codenamed The Overlord, was recently awarded the prestigious Medal of Intelligence Commendation for his work with the Facebook program, which he has called quote, the single most powerful tool for population control ever created. Among the biggest successes of the Facebook program is Operation Farmville, which the CIA credits with pacifying as many as 85 million people after unemployment rates rose dramatically. Other features, such as the suggested Friends window have been instrumental in allowing government agents to infiltrate deeper into the friend networks of suspected dissidents. For some expert analysis now on the story, let's check in with the Fact Zone's first responders. Jason, you have written extensively about the Facebook program. Why is it so effective? Well,
6: one of the key reasons is that the CIA has been so thorough in convincing the nation that constantly sharing information about everything that you're doing is somehow desirable instead of deeply unsettling. Yeah. You know, the critics
4: are saying that with the national debt being so high, is this really the time to be spending? even more money on spy programs. Well,
3: actually, the Facebook program saves the CIA money. That's right. Uh, like the Maps application where mm-hmm. you list every place that you've been, whether it's the state or a country or... Oh,
5: right, with the little pins that show
14: where you visited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. like that.
3: That kind of information would have taken the CIA months of going through uh, hotel receipts and plane tickets to figure it all out. The, the manpower that Facebook saves is yeah, huge. Absolutely,
6: absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and the calendar feature even lets the CIA know where you're going to be in advance. So that's Right, uh, so
3: now if they want
4: to pick you up for questioning, all they have to do is see which events you RSVP, Yes, to and then send their agents to be waiting for you.
3: That's for how you. they got my brother. That's
4: yeah. right. So effective. Mm-hmm. But, guys, with all the focus on the Facebook program, is it taking away from some of the other CIA programs like the Twitter initiative? Oh, oh, okay.
3: yeah, the funding for that should be cut entirely.
4: Right, oh. 400 billion tweets and not one useful bit of data was ever transmitted. Oh, that's true. Now, is this trend of social network information gathering dangerous? I mean, just last week, the New York Times revealed that Al Qaeda has designed Foursquare to mm. identify popular locations for bombing.
6: Actually, Brooke, that's been uh, discredited as any kind of real threat. The people that use that site are people that
3: no one would mind seeing bombed anyway. Really, the the only thing the CIA has to uh, be concerned about is people losing interest in Facebook and moving on to a new social network site, like the Chinese site Wanbi. I love
4: Wanbi. Are you guys on Wanbi? Oh my my God, God, it's so much more fun than Facebook. It it is great. I love that one. I
14: love that you can earn friend points, the more state secrets that you post. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got a lot of contacts in the State Department. You know, I think I could really rack them up. You should post them up. (laughs) All
4: right, (laughs) first responders, thank you so much as always. You know, I'm, of course, a big fan of any social networking site. It allows me to interact with my fans without having to see, hear or smell them. New York, New York a hell of a town The Bronx
15: is up but the battery's down. The people ride in the hole in the ground. New York New York, it's a hell of a town Such a wonderful town The famous places to visit are so many or so the guidebooks say I promised baby we wouldn't miss on any And we have just one day Gotta see the whole town Right from Yonkers on
1: down to the bay The democratic uprising in Egypt Might have removed dictator Hosni Mubarak But U.S. media still worry about the future For Israel, that is On April 13th, NBC reporter Richard Engel explained This whole
15: movement in the Middle East, and I'm worried about it, because while people in the region deserve more rights, and they want more rights, and they're embracing more of the the will of the Arab street, well, the will of the Arab street is also ferociously anti-Israel, against Israel. And there's many people who believe that if you empower the Arab street, and the Arab street wants to see a war or wants to see more justice for the palestinians that down the road three to five years this could lead
1: to a major war with israel seeing democracy as a threat to israel's interests is common enough in the corporate media and outlets find odd ways to raise these concerns the new york times reported on a poll of egyptians that found that fifty four percent want to annul the nineteen seventy nine peace treaty with israel the times explained that quote The finding squares with the overwhelming anecdotal evidence that Egyptians feel Israel has not lived up to its commitments in its treatment of the Palestinians, close quote. It's unusual to characterize public opinion about any topic as a reflection of anecdotal evidence. It sounds like the Times doesn't think Egyptians know what they're talking about, or that mistreatment of Palestinians is some sort of well-traveled
9: rumor.
5: There is a long, dirty history in American politics of using terrifying threats about terrorism uh, to pursue some other totally unrelated political goal.
7: All right, the terrorists have won, ladies and gentlemen, a 9-0 vote by the Landmark Commission in New York, clearing the way for a mosque to be built at the site of Ground Zero. The radio host Rush Limbaugh
5: saying building a mosque at the site of a former Burlington coat factory in lower Manhattan is a victory for the terrorists who attacked us on 9-11. Senator Jim DeMint also said if TSA screeners are allowed to be in unions, then you know, also terrorism.
3: When we formed the airport security system, we realized we could not use collective bargaining and unionization because of that need to be flexible, yet that appears to be the top priority now of the administration. These things are not going to appease the terrorists. They're going to keep coming after us, and we can't have politics as usual in Washington, and I'm afraid that's what we've got right now with airport security.
5: Allowing TSA screeners to be in unions, you know, terrorism. During the 2006 midterms, the threat from the administration then was if you vote for Democrats, terrorism.
13: However they put it, the Democrat approach in Iraq comes down to this. The terrorists win and America loses.
5: Up the threat stakes to nuclear uh, and fear-mongering politicians have used that to go after even bigger political goals totally unrelated to the thing they are threatening you with.
14: We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud.
13: We cannot wait for the final proof, the smoking gun, that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud.
5: Saddam Hussein did not have a nuclear program, that threat was not real, but that is such a big, terrifying fake threat, a mushroom cloud, that it's the kind of thing that can scare us into even really big, unrelated policy disasters.
3: What we know for a fact from a number of defectors who have come out of Iraq over the years is that Saddam Hussein is absolutely determined to acquire nuclear weapons and is building them as fast as he can. We read in the
15: New York Times today a story that says that uh, Saddam Hussein is closer to acquiring nuclear weapons. Does he have nuclear weapons? Is there a smoking
12: gun here? Smoking gun is an interesting phrase. And as we saw in reporting just this morning, what specifically has he obtained that you believe would enhance his nuclear development program?
5: America's fear-mongering history about the nuclear end of the world uh, is kinda too bad because it is not fear-mongering to talk about the nuclear end of the world if you are actually working directly to stop the nuclear end of the world. That is the job of one part of the United States government. It's an obscure office in the Department of Energy called the National Nuclear Security Administration. They lock down unprotected loose nuclear material around the world to keep it off the black market and out of terrorist hands which, without being hysterical about it, does seem like an important job when you consider that groups like Al-Qaeda have said over and over again that they want to buy nuclear material so they could use it in a terrorist attack, and there is evidence that they have tried to buy it on the black market. There is part of the U.S. government that finds the most vulnerable nuclear material in the world and secures it. So if you're worried about this sort of thing, the appropriate response is, Good, I'm glad we're doing that. After that agency locked down 111 pounds of nuclear material in Ukraine around Christmas time, we hosted the head of the National Nuclear Security Administration here on this show. We christened him the Undersecretary for Saving the World. Now the Republicans in Congress want to strip the funding for that agency. Even though they said they wouldn't make any national security cuts, they want to cut $550 million from the agency that locks down unprotected loose nuclear material to keep it off the black market around the world. Which means that, for what may be the first time in U.S. history, an ad that starts this way is actually true and is not fear-mongering.
3: What I'm about to tell you sounds crazy, but it's true. Speaker John Boehner is making it easier for terrorists to get nuclear weapons.
5: Sounds crazy, also true. It it, it sounds like a generic be afraid ad from the Bush administration era. In this case, Republicans really have proposed making it a half billion dollars easier for terrorists to get nuclear material. That was the first line of a new ad voiced by retired Lieutenant General Robert Gard. He's part of a counter-proliferation group that is running these ads against the nuke terrorism cuts in key congressional districts. Listen.
3: Speaker John Boehner and the House Republicans cut hundreds of millions of dollars from a successful U.S. program to secure dangerous weapons-grade nuclear material all around the world. Terrorists can make nuclear weapons with it. John Boehner's reckless cut to our nuclear security budget goes way too far. We all want Congress to cut the budget, but do it responsibly.
5: The ads are targeting not just John Boehner, but Mitch McConnell, Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, Hal Rogers, and Thad Cochran, all elected Republicans supporting this big cut. This big cut to the part of the US government that actually works on that whole smoking gun mushroom cloud problem instead of just freaking you out about it to accomplish some other unrelated political thing. We do not have a word in the English language that means the opposite of fear-mongering, but if we ever do have that word, this will be the example next to that word in the political science dictionary.
6: Back in America, our Department of Homeland Security teaches us when you're traveling, if you see something, say something. That's why whenever I go to the airport, I am constantly saying everything I see. (laughs) Luggage, woman, Cinnabon, scared man in bathroom mirror. That's why I have always loved the Homeland Security's color-coded terror alert system. It is the only rainbow that has not been ruined by the gaze. I was so shocked then to hear this from Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano. Beginning next week, April the 26th, uh, we will eliminate the old color code system. What? No more color coding, but without these bright colors, how will I know what flavor my fear is? And, 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 and what is Homeland Security's replacement for the Sherman Williams paint
13: swatches of doom? Remember the old terror alert chart? Well, that will be gone. Replaced by only two levels. Elevated and imminent. Elevated
6: and imminent? Wanna throw in vexum and lugubrious? Oh, my. I didn't know I had to ace the SATs to know the appropriate time to crap my pants. This new system will also allow you to sign up for terror alerts via email, Facebook, and Twitter. Great! I can't wait to receive a tweet that the Department of Homeland Security has raised the threat level because of evidence that a terrorist plot is about to happen in the city of, oh no, too many characters! What city? Is it New York? Tell me, terror tweet! Tell me! But the most terrifying part of this new terror alert system is our current threat level status. Right now we have
14: no threats in the country that meet the criteria uh, for an NTAS alert.
6: That's right. The current threat level is there isn't one. (laughs) Folks, since the color code was put into effect in March 2002, we have existed in a national Constant state of semi hysteria. And suddenly she's saying we can all relax? Has she never seen a horror movie? The moment you think you're safe is when Ghostface gets you. If we only have two alert levels, I think they should be it's quiet and maybe too quiet. So, folks, If my natural paranoia is no longer validated by a government color chart, I will accept the new paradigm and for the first time in nine years, I'm going to unclench my sphincter. (laughs) For America.
4: Hi Jay, I'm Ursula, and I'm calling from the Chicago suburbs. I'm calling to recommend a podcast to you and your listeners called the Bob and Elvis Show. It's relatively new, I think they've been on for about a year now, and they're much more centrist than a lot of the other shows that I listen to are. But after I listen to Democracy Now! and The Best of the Left and Rachel Maddow and Citizen Radio, and I get very angry. I like to switch over to the Bob and Elvis show because they calm me down a bit. It's not all politics, but I really like what they have to say. Anyway, I hope you check them out and you like what you hear. Um, Thank you for your show. I'm a really big fan. I'm spreading the word about the best of the left anywhere I can, like the good little socialist that I am. I've even convinced my mom to listen to your show, and I'm happy to report that she's a huge fan. Anyway, thanks, Jay. Bye.
8: Hello, Jay.
15: My name is Ken. I live in Chicagoland, calling in response to the very, very well done episode about the battleground inside people's bodies, specifically women. And I'm glad the connection was made between the fight against abortion, which I think a lot of reasonable people could go either way on that issue. Frankly, I'm 32 years old, and I don't know what my opinion is on it. Um, but tying that with the same people who are so against abortion are always against, co- often against contraception too, which is idiotic. And there's a phrase, "uncommonly silly," which was uh, in the, the court case Griswold versus Connecticut, which was a big one in the 60s where they they tried to ban contraception. And Justice Potter Stewart, who was a, appointed by Eisenhower, said it was. In his dissent against what was eventually the finding that a state couldn't outlaw contraception, was that it was an un- in his own opinion it was an uncommonly silly law. But and he would vote against it if he was working in the state legislature. But he didn't think it was the government, the federal government's place and the court's place to be able to say to every state, you can't have a law like that. And then in 2003, there was a similar thing uh, having to do with sodomy laws. Lawrence versus Texas where guys got busted basically for having anal sex in their own home. Cops came in for some strange reason and goes all the way to the Supreme Court whether people should be prosecuted for having anal sex in their own home. Adults and everything. And Clarence Thomas dissents on the eventual decision. The eventual decision was that the state can't have a law like that. You have people still on the court who dissented though. Clarence Thomas quoted from Potter Stewart's dissent in v. Connecticut, said, while I personally think it's uncommonly silly for there to be a law against sodomy, and I would vote against it if I was a legislator, it's not the Supreme Court's place. And so that's kind of scary where you say, such a a simple thing whether someone can have anal sex in their own home uh when they're an adult and there's people on the supreme court saying you know what it's kind of reasonable that a state would pass that law so people need to remain vigilant i think so uh thank you very much for your uh attention to this and keep it going i i love your show
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. The first thing I want to mention today is, uh, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, I played a bunch of songs talking about New York today, kind of out of place. What was that all about? Uh, The reason was to commemorate uh, in my own little way the fact that I'm coming to you from New York this weekend because... My brother's getting married, hooray, and the whole family came to the big city uh, for the wedding, and that's what's going on, and it's lots of fun, and that's about all I have to say about that. The second thing I want to say is uh, I want to give you my opinion on Bin Laden being killed. How's that for a transition? Uh, y- you know, and the the news is old. Uh, it's not my job to bring you the breaking news, but uh, my opinion on it is so interesting that I thought I would share it with you anyways. Basically... This news is interesting to me because it gave me a look inside my own head in a way that news almost never does. Uh, You know, I have lots of strong opinions about lots of different political issues, and I've come to those opinions almost entirely based on kind of analysis and facts on one side and the other, and I hear both arguments and come to a conclusion that makes sense to me. But this news was different because it's just something that happened, uh, and it's something that you know, our country has been trying to make happen for almost a decade. Uh, We'd basically gotten to the point where we thought, well, eh, I wonder if that'll ever happen. And, um, you know, so I'm talking about my reaction before I heard word one of any kind of commentary uh, from any side, you know, liberal, conservative, uh, domestic or international, pro-terrorist, anti-terrorist. I don't know. I mean, zero commentary. I just heard, Bin Laden been killed, and my reaction was almost entirely apathetic. Uh, I certainly am not sad, but I'm also not happy. I, I, I basically just don't care. Uh, I don't know what impact it's going to have on the world. I don't know what impact it's going to have on our foreign policy. I would hope that it would have a positive impact on on, on those things, but I really don't know. And what I found really interesting is that one of the first thoughts that went through my head was a little bit of disappointment that we didn't capture him. And uh, and so what that told me is that deep down, at, at my absolute core, on an emotional level, I just don't have, like, that bloodlust. I don't have the, the revenge instinct. Uh, it brought me no pleasure to hear that he had been killed. And I think that I would have derived more... Uh, I mean, like pleasure is not the right word. I think I just would have had a stronger sense of justice being served if we had captured him. And I'm not saying that you know what we did was wrong. Uh, and and I'm, I'm I'm not even making the argument that for those people who see this event as uh, you know a, a sen- that they get a sense of closure or that they feel that justice has been served. I'm not even saying I'm not even making the argument against that. I'm really only talking from, you know, my own personal perspective on having this realization the the deep and like fundamental degree to which I just don't need people to be killed. Uh I don't need for people to be killed in our penal system, you know, through the death penalty. Uh I and I don't need terrorists to be killed. I just I just don't need it. Uh and that's not even to say like I'm not even making the moral judgment on whether it's right or wrong. Like I would generally I think come down on the side of like yeah, let's not kill people uh in a moral discussion. But and that's not even what I'm saying. So uh so you know that was my initial reaction. I got to look inside my own head it was just like wow, what a total softy pinko liberal I am. Um I I kind of kind of knew I felt this way, but uh, hadn't really been confronted with it. And then I heard on, uh, on The Daily Show, they have their moment of zen It's the little tag at the end. And they played a clip that I believe was from Fox News. The, guy, the reporter looked like Geraldo Rivera. He stuck a microphone in like a college student age uh, kid. And, uh, and I heard this.
6: I have two finals tomorrow. And guess what? I'm not
2: starting from because we just killed Bill
0: <laughs> So I heard that. And right or wrong, that clip turned my stomach. And as I as I said it before, I'll say it again. I don't care that he's dead. I'm not sorry that he's dead. Um, but to see people get excited about it in that way and, and, you know, it's party time and just like, really? Like, I don't I, I don't connect with people on that level. I just I don't know how to get excited about that. Um, and to be honest, I don't even know what I think About myself feeling this way. I'm just kind of reporting to you my like unvarnished emotions about it with basically no analytical backing for it whatsoever. Uh, So if you have opinions, feel free to to call in. Let me know what you think. If you, you know, opinions about the event, opinions about my opinions, feel free. Uh, The number again, 206-202-3410. Now, to uh, change directions again entirely, uh, I wanted to go back and ask you guys again to uh, please support my fundraising efforts for the New Leaders Council. This is uh, the organization that I've become a part of, Become supportive of, and I am working uh, my ass off, hopefully, to raise some money uh, to help them fund their operations. They have given me, you know, a- amazing amounts of, uh, you know, really high-level training uh, to make me a better progressive, a better activist, a better you know, political entrepreneur, all of these things, like they've been really, really valuable to me and hundreds and hundreds of other people all across the country. Uh, they've been running these programs in, uh, cities across the country for years now, and they plan to continue for years into the future, of course. Uh, But, uh, the way they do that is with a little bit of funding from the, uh, the fellows who come through their program, Run a fundraising event every year, and that's what I'm doing right now. Of course, this show is like my biggest ability to reach out to people, and so if you basically appreciate this show, appreciate what I do, and uh, want to want want to give back. Um, basically, I'm asking for th- for this favor to support this organization that I want to support, the New Leaders Council. You can do that at bit.ly, bit.ly, bit.ly slash support NLC for the New Leaders Council. That takes you to a page that, uh, you know, theoretically allows you to buy a ticket because it's a local event. But, uh, you know, the, the group is national. The funds are, you know, they get pooled to the national uh, organization anyways. This is just my branch uh, that I'm helping to support. Obviously, if you're not in the area, you're not going to buy a ticket for the event, but you can uh, donate 5 or 10 bucks or whatever you feel comfortable with, and, uh, and that'll be incredibly helpful, just helping me reach my goal. I'm just trying to raise a few hundred dollars just to do my part. Uh, all the other fellows, of course, are doing their part as well. So if you can help me uh, get to that goal, it would be greatly appreciated. And then finally, uh, people who've been uh, supportive of this show directly, a couple of members I want to thank. Jason H. signed up for a socialist membership back on January 4th and signed up for a full year in advance. So thank you, Jason. And Kevin O. signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on May 23rd of last year. So uh, Kevin and Jason and all the members and donors to make the show possible, thank you very much. I couldn't do without you guys. Uh, And that is literal. I (laughs) I literally would uh, not be able to produce nearly as many shows as I do so the content you get is uh, is all thanks to the members so uh, we should all be grateful to them of course everyone can support the show uh, which is almost equally important is to keep growing the show get new people you know if you can't be a member yourself but you tell a friend about it and they become a member that is just as good so uh, telling all your friends about it really really does help and you can help spread the word by uh, spreading around our new YouTube videos that uh, they go out, you know, clips, each individual clip from the show is now on YouTube. You can spread that uh, around that way at youtube.com slash the best of the left. All those are linked up on the uh, show notes as well. You can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details about the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Blind, blind,
9: is the floor, we will take you out any open door, this is not my life, it's just a fun friend.